is the most reliable person you know? Who is it in your life that when your life around you seems to be falling apart, circumstances seem fearful and distressing, and your future appears perplexing and uncertain, this person comes to your mind before all other people. Greater than anyone else, this person remains committed towards you. This person is there to support you when you're weak, forgive you when you've sinned against them. They correct you when you're wrong, counsel you when you're perplexed, and they only intend to do what is good for you and never evil. Who is that person for you? Again, this is the person that you've observed over time who is very careful with their words. They don't mix their words. They don't make empty promises. When others seem to speak out of both sides of their mouths, this person continues to be constant and reliable in your life. They continue to be a man or woman of their word. You see, whoever that is that comes to mind, whoever that is that fits that bill, we tend to do what towards them? We tend to trust them. This person is like a life draft for you and I, as if we were abandoned at sea. Their life, their words, their actions have built a level of credibility in our eyes, and so we trust them. And then we tend to do what? We we often tend to cling to them for encouragement too. We tend to cling to them even for that motivation to get back up and get out of bed and face life once again and not quit. We can even tend to cling to them with an ever-tightening grip, especially when we feel like we've lost trust in virtually everyone else around us. Friends, trust is a priceless yet fragile gift, isn't it? Trust earned, trust extended, and trust maintained is precious. It's precious because it involves people's hearts, their livelihood, their families, and to some extent, even their futures. But trust can be fragile too. Even when we lose trust in another person or we lose someone else's trust of us, the ground under our feet begins to totter. And we find ourselves looking left and right in every conceivable place or person, all because we're looking to cling to someone or something where we can find security and rest for our souls once again. Well, in his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul sought to convey a similar truth to his young protege in ministry, an irreversible truth with an absolute promise that Paul sought to press upon Timothy's mind as Timothy was called to press on forward and endure in his life and ministry even after Paul was dead and gone. An irreversible truth with an absolute promise that we too must find our security and rest in if we are going to endure in the faith 
to the end. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find them on page 578. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, please take that Bible in the uh, pew back as a gift from our church to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're continuing our study this morning through Paul's second letter to Timothy, and we continue this theme of endurance in the face of suffering for the gospel. If you've been with us in this study, you already know Paul had been unjustly arrested and quarantined inside a Roman prison cell. And why was he in that jail cell? Because of his obedience to God's call on his life. Friends, you can obey God and life actually gets harder and worse for you. That doesn't mean you're being faithless. Oftentimes, it means you're being faithful. Paul was obedient to herald the gospel, and it sent him to jail. And yet, Timothy, too, was to embrace and humbly receive this mantle of sharing in suffering for the gospel with Paul as a fellow believer and co-laborer in ministry. Last week, we looked at 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, and in that passage, we learned that in order for Paul to prepare Timothy and push him forward to what he would face in the future, to push him forward towards faithfulness in the mission, he calls Timothy, and thus all Christians in one way or another, to do the following. As a review, if you weren't here last week, or of course, if you've forgotten the points, here they were, we must, number one, draw continued strength from the abundant grace of God. We must, number two, disciple and delegate while keeping the long game in mind. We must remember that, number three, focus, discipline, and endurance is required for the rest of your Christian life. And fourthly, we learn that we must think hard while praying much. Paul continues on in this same train of thought, and now he instructs Timothy to not forget the mission as well as who we must rely upon before all others in our life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Please follow with me. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is God's word. How do we as Christians endure in our faith and not throw away our faith? Who should our faith rest on in order to persevere in the faith to the end. If you're taking notes, I have two main points with some subpoints contained within. Point 
Number one, I'll repeat it twice. Stay on mission by trusting in the power of God's word and not in circumstances. Stay on mission by trusting in the power of God's word and not circumstances. That's verses 8 to 10. Point number two, stay on mission by trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord and not infallible people. Stay on mission by trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord and not infallible people. That's verses 11 to 13. Let's look at that first point together. Stay on mission by trusting in the power of God's word and not in circumstances. Paul first begins verse 8 by directing Timothy's attention, did you notice? Not to an idea, not to an emotion, not even to a place, not even to a task. If Timothy's going to endure, he has to focus his attention. He must preoccupy his mind. He must be fixated not on an idea, not on a place, not on a task, but on a person. The person of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, many of you regularly attend here. You're members. Some of you are not members here, but you're a Christian of another church and you're visiting with us. Some of you are not a Christian, but you're interested in following Jesus. And some of you are not a Christian and don't care, and you've been brought here, forced against your will. Well, I just want to welcome everyone here, okay? So we're going to have a little Christianity 101 ABCs to, to stump you a little bit. If you were asked today, who is Jesus Christ? What would you say? If you had a whiteboard and a marker and someone willing to listen, what would you put on that whiteboard? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, I'm going to give you some answers so you have something to write on those whiteboards. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua. Can we say that together? Yeshua. And all the Jews said that was a terrible pronunciation in Hebrew. Either way, it's translated Joshua. The name literally means Yahweh or the Lord saves. Jesus is the name that the angel of the Lord instructed Joseph in a dream to take Mary as his wife and name their child. The only child who would ever be conceived throughout human history, not by natural conception, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. As we read in the Gospel of Matthew, how the purpose of naming him Jesus would encapsulate the very mission for why he would come to this earth. Often read around Christmas time, you are familiar with this text. Matthew 1, 21 to 23, the angel of the Lord said, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is God in human flesh with us. 
Jesus has come as the God-man to save his people from their sins. That's who Jesus is. And then in the common fashion throughout the New Testament, the name Jesus, the boy who was born a virgin, who grew up to be a fully developed man, was also given a title, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. So kids, if you've ever asked that, I used to ask that sitting at church going, how did he get that last name? I didn't see Mary and Joseph get that name. Well, it's a fine question to ask. Some adults think that too. It's not like, like my last name is Boylston. That's not exactly what's going on here. The word Christ is a title, which means anointed one. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, it was common practice for some of the priests, kings, and prophets to be anointed, usually involving the pouring of oil on their head to ordain them to an office. I think, for example, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, King Saul, or Elisha. When Jesus begins his public ministry, he taught openly that he was the anointed one or Messiah that the scriptures foretold would come. For example, listen to Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And friends, that's precisely who Jesus is. He's the promised Messiah, the anointed one who was filled with the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, friends, is the last and final prophet who spoke the very words of God. Jesus is the sympathetic and faithful high priest who has come to mediate between a holy God and sinful man. And Jesus eventually would die as a sacrifice, as a substitute, as the Lamb of God, to be slaughtered under the wrath of God for the sins of all of us who would recognize our rebellion against this good God and turn in faith to him. However, Jesus' message and ministry was utterly rejected by many he came across, even amongst the Jewish people, even amongst the most religious, staunchly, well-taught Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. They even rejected him, as well as his own hometown of Nazareth rejected him even after displaying his sovereign power over things like feeding the 5,000, healing the sick, delivering the demonically oppressed, restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, causing the lame to walk, making the leper restored, and countless other acts of supernatural mercy. Many still did not receive him. Many did not believe in him. Many did not trust him. 
And even after teaching with flawless, authoritative, pinpoint accuracy the Hebrew Scriptures, the very men who claim to know and teach the Scriptures, they would even reject what he taught. But why? Why was the God-man, the Messiah, the Son of God, full of mercy, grace, and truth, why was he and his ministry discarded as trash to be thrown away? Well, it was because of their envy of him. It was because of their jealousy of him. When Jesus shows up, he was threatening their pride parade because Jesus came with an authority that you've only got one of two options with Jesus. You will either buck and rebel against him or you will bow and worship him. And that's what happens anytime Jesus comes to a church. That's what happens anytime Jesus comes to a house. That's what happens anytime Jesus comes into anyone's life. He comes with an authority, a heavenly authority. And his authority comes with power and truth, and it exposes our sin. Friends, how are you responding in your life today to Jesus' authority over you? Well, these men, they hated the idea of submitting to King Jesus because of their idolatry of self-love. So what did they do? They sought to falsely accuse him. He's a Sabbath breaker. He's a blasphemer. He's a deceiver. He's a son of the devil. He is Satan incarnate. Eventually, Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own disciples. A man he spent nearly three years with sharing some of his most intimate parts of his life with. In the inner 12, it was Judas who was gripped by greed and satanic deception, and he backstabbed Jesus, all for some money and some street cred to be popular with the bullies and egomaniacs of the religious leaders of his day. And then the darkest day that the world has ever seen began. They put Jesus up in a kangaroo court, indicted him as a criminal, had him crucified and killed on a shameful cross where he suffered for hours and would die alone. A man who had never sinned was punished and killed as if he was guilty of committing crimes that deserve the death penalty. These spiritually blind, deaf, prideful, unbelieving men killed the author of life. And they thought they were being righteous in doing so. Friends, we too should be warned by those who crucified Jesus. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves doing the very same thing to other people in our life. Sin always has a way of distorting our perception of reality. We end up opposing and distrusting those we should trust, and we end up listening to people we should not trust. 
But what was the proof that Jesus really was and is the Christ? I mean, if he was rejected, in what real sense is Jesus a savior or the Messiah? Why should anyone, including us today, why should any one of us even bother with trusting this man named Jesus? Well, friends, if you read the Gospels and you stop at the cross when he died, it does appear Jesus was a failure. It does appear that at best he's a crazy man or at worst a liar. But Paul doesn't stop here, does he? Look with me again at verse 8. Paul describes in a quick, concise, commentary fashion for Timothy what he already knew about Jesus from his teaching and discipleship. Jesus Christ, did you see the next phrase? Risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. Resurrected from the dead. How do we know that the message of Christianity is true? historical, and reliable because Jesus got up from the dead. You see, the entire message of Christianity hinges on this reality, the claim that Jesus got up from the dead, the very existence of the church rises or falls on this historical reality. Did Jesus get up from the grave? Well, notice again, Paul earlier in his letters in 1 Corinthians, he said that the resurrection was essential to the Christian message. Essential. That if we are going to be followers of Christ, friends, if he didn't get up from the dead, we're crazy people. You're wasting your time this morning. Go use Sunday as a second Saturday and hoorah. But you're here this morning, I'm here this morning, banking our souls, spending our time, spending our money, spending our energy because he got up from the dead. Friends, listen carefully to this following passage because Paul needed to remind Timothy of something he already knew about the resurrection in order to propel him to endure in his life. Consider writing this text down and meditating on it this week. I'm going to read it for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
So here in 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul is drawing Timothy's attention. He's drawing our attention this morning back to Jesus, who is God with us, who has come to save us from our sins. Friends, that's because he accomplished the work of redemption by rising again from the dead. Brothers and sisters, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's grounding Timothy's faith. He is grounding Timothy's feet, if you will, from slipping away into apathy. Slipping away into atheism. Slipping away into apostasy. Walking away from the faith. He's laying a 10-layer slab of concrete underneath his disciple that will undergird him, that will uphold him no matter what comes his way. Paul tells Timothy, my child, this Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the anointed one that the scriptures foretold would come. This Jesus is the one whom God vindicated and proved to the onlooking world that his son is the savior of the world and he proved that by rising him from the dead. This is the one that Paul said in Colossians is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything Jesus might be first place in the universe. That in everything he might be first place in your life and in my life and in this church. Friends, do you ever find yourself perplexed on who you should trust in? Do you ever find yourself perplexed on what to believe, how to make sense of the world, which is full of evil, problems, disappointment, and death? Friend, don't look to people or pleasures to fill a void it can't deliver. Don't settle for the mantra. Well, I'll just look out for me. I'm just going to go get mine. I'm just done with people, but I trust me. Friends, other people have failed you and you have failed you. So the answer is not distrust everyone else and trust myself. No, we're a part of the people we shouldn't trust. For there is a way that seems right to a man, but his end is what? Death. To my non-Christian friend, that means there's only one person you can turn to for the forgiveness of your sins. That's Jesus Christ. There's only one person that can make sense of this jacked up world. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one person that can resurrect your marriage, resurrect your heart, resurrect your kids' hearts, and actually give you a hope that this world can't give you, and that is Jesus Christ. To my non-Christian friend, put your faith today. Kids, put your faith today in Jesus and what he has done for you. 
Friends, we waste so much time putting people in first place that do not deserve first place. Jesus is first place. And when we get that right, everyone else in our life falls in line. Fellow Christian, have you unknowingly elevated someone in your life above Jesus? We should always put trusting Jesus as number one in our lives. And the people we should trust the most are the Christians who remind us that Jesus is number one the most. Those are the people you should trust. They talk a whole lot more about Jesus than themselves. They talk a lot more about God's word and his faithfulness than our own. Friends, turn to Christ, Christian or non-Christian. He is our only hope. Back to verse 8. Paul doesn't stop there with the resurrection, though, does he? He then draws Timothy's attention to Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the risen from the dead, but he is also the offspring of David. Well, now you're back to the whiteboard again. You're sitting there with this curious young Christian or non-Christian, and they're like, all right, I'll give you some more time. You got me who this Jesus the Christ is. Got it. Who's David? My first name is David, but that's not exactly what's going on here. This is referring to King David, the second king to reign over Israel in the Old Testament. David was not only the sweet psalmist of Israel, the youngest son of Jesse, and the man after God's own heart, but David was also the king that God made a sure covenant with, that from his offspring would come the Messiah. Now listen to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 1 to 5, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jeremiah the prophet did the same thing. In Jeremiah 23, 5, he speaks of a righteous branch, descendant of David, who would rule justly in the land. Friends, these prophecies were more than just a quick, quiet time verse that you thought about for five minutes and moved on. These prophecies are what the people of God held on to. Their kings had failed them. Their priests had failed them. Their prophets had failed them. They had failed them. They were in exile. They were in slavery. And prophet after prophet was saying, there is a king, there is a prophet, there is a priest, and he's one person fulfilling three offices the anointed one, the Messiah. He would rule over his people justly and in love like a king and like a shepherd. And they're looking, they're looking, they're looking. When will he come? You see, throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, much like us today, were plagued with the roller coaster of emotions and the rebellion and obedience cycle. 
And they found themselves at different times in their history saying things like this, if God is good and God has promised to be with his people, lead his people, and deliver his people, then where is my God during times of suffering? Friends, that's not a question just you and I ask. That is the question that the saints of old ask. If God is faithful, why won't he deliver us from fill in the blank? If God is faithful, why won't he heal, restore, renew, remove, transform, or save fill in the blank? Earlier, Jackson read from Psalm 89, which is one place in the Psalter that this seeming paradox comes up. I would encourage you to read the whole psalm sometime. It's, it's very long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. At the beginning of Psalm 89, recall what Jackson read in the call to worship. It begins singing and extolling the faithfulness of God. Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a sure covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. But then as you read the very end of the psalm, we see the cry of a hurting and oppressed people. Psalm 89, starting in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Friends, have you been there? If you were humbly honest with yourself, has that sounded like your prayer life lately? You're clinging to the truth that we sung earlier. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. I believe it. And yet, out of the other side of our mouth, how long, O oh Lord? When will you fill in the blank? Friends, if you have ever prayed that, you're in good company. The people of God from the Old to the New Testament, that is our battle cry and that is our prayer. But beloved, you know what the good news is? You and I don't have to stay there. We can, according to what God has said, bit by bit, overcome that unbelief. With the help of God, if we trust God and his word, we can 
put to death the deeds of the flesh and so live. Romans 8, 13. But how? How can we go from this quandary of I believe, help my unbelief, Lord, you're faithful, but where is your faithfulness? How can we begin to cause our hearts to be more in line with what we know to be true? Friends, we do it this way. We overcome our unbelief by grounding our faith not in present emotions and circumstances, but in the authority, the reliability, and the power of God's word. We overcome our unbelief by grounding our faith, not in present emotions or circumstances, but in the authority, the reliability, and the power of God's word. Or as our first point is, stay on mission by trusting in the power of God's word and not in circumstances. You see, friends, because it's a historical fact that Jesus got up from the dead, that means the promises God made about Jesus hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, through the scriptures, came to pass. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20. You see, in the scriptures, we were told the Messiah would be born in the city of who? Of David. The genealogy or family tree. He would be a man, truly a man, born as a son of David. And what do we see when Jesus is born and lives out his life on earth? For all you biblical theologians, here you go. He fulfilled every promise about the offspring of David that was ever made. He is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to refer to himself, disclosing himself as both David's son and yet simultaneously David's Lord. That's why in Luke 1, 32 and 33, the angel Gabriel said that the Lord God gave to him the throne of his father David, and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Thus fulfilling the prophecies of 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Psalm 89, and echoing the Son of Man from Daniel 7, whose kingdom reigns and rules over the whole world. Why is Paul giving these details to young Timothy who already knew those verses? Because he's reminding Timothy what we need to be reminded of in the face of adversity. Our faith in the present must be rooted, grounded, standing upon the unbreakable concrete that is upheld by the redemptive, historical, prophecy-fulfilling deposit of the Word of God. God's Word is powerful. God's Word is effective. And because of that, God's Word cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be overcome, no matter what circumstances you and I face. Friends, His Word goes out. Every family worship time, every sermon, every gospel track, every conversation with a friend, 
every Bible study, every counseling session, every single time the word goes forth. We might not see the results in our time and in our way, but God is working through his word. Friends, we want a sanctified church. We will only be sanctified by the truth. His word is truth. And friends, this is exactly what Timothy needed to hear in his life and ministry. Timothy, remind yourself of the historical prophecy-fulfilling reality that Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. Friends, how would this, being reminded of who Jesus is in the face of adversity, how would that actually help Timothy? I mean, Paul could have come up with like 10 strategies to deal with knuckleheads in Rome or Ephesus, you know? He could have given him that. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ uphold you and I in life and ministry moving forward? Let's put it all together. Look at verses 8 to 10 now. Here's what Paul says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. There's Paul's bad circumstance. All right, you following me here? He's giving him who Jesus is, his fulfillment as a testimony to God's faithfulness, preached in my gospel. It sent him to jail. He's being treated as a criminal. He's been obedient to the heavenly call. But notice what he says. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything. You know what that word everything means in the Greek? Everything. Yours might say all things. Some of us might say everything. It's all the same thing. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Brothers and sisters, Paul was unjustly arrested, unfairly ridiculed, lied about, and left for a death sentence in a Roman prison cell, all because he was obedient to Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in his gospel. And yet notice what Paul's confidence and faith is in. Do you see anything in there going, God, get me out of this jail? God, these chains are starting to hurt my wrist and ankles. God, would you get some AC in this, this jail cell? It's getting a little stuffy. He's locked up. He's chained up. He's ostracized. He's been muzzled. He's been looked down upon, and he's got a death sentence about to have his head cut off by Nero, and the one thing he's focused on is the one thing his confidence is in. I am bound, but God's word is not. You can kill the Christians, but you can't kill the Savior that they love. You can lock us up. You can persecute. You can have us arrested and shut down churches, but Christians will find a way to get the gospel out, and the church will be built up. Ever since the first century, that's been going on. It's going on around the world, and it's happening right now. You cannot lock up the power of God's word from penetrating people's lives. 
So what did Paul resolve to do? If Paul was exemplifying before Timothy what it means to be confident in the word and not get distracted by his circumstances, what did that cause Paul to do? Well, he says right there, he continued to endure whatever came his way for this purpose. I endure everything, all things, everything, for the sake of the elect. That word elect there, you can circle it. It means chosen. It refers to the bride of Christ. It refers to the church. It refers to the sheep of Christ. It refers to those sinners that God in eternity past set his love on to save them and make him his own. That's chapter 1, verse 9. He says he endured all things for the sake of the elect that they might enjoy and experience the benefits of knowing Christ Jesus forever. Friends, when Christians begin studying their Bibles seriously for the first time, they'll eventually bump into this word elect or election. It's not speaking about the presidential election next year, by the way. But sometimes Christians, when they come across this, they've been in enough debates and they've heard rumors about predestination and election, or maybe they've sat under a pastor or a ministry uh, that's too cowardly to teach on it, or they water it down and don't help them understand it. Well, that's for a different sermon for a different day to go deeper into this, because the text doesn't go any deeper than this one phrase. But I do want to answer a legitimate question I have been asked many times in my life as a pastor and as just a member, okay? Okay. Here's a legitimate question. If Paul's enduring all things for the sake of the elect, they might be brought into the faith. Well, how do you know who are elect and who are not? Maybe you've asked that question before. How do you know who were chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world? How do you know? Here's a simple answer. Those who are believing in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, they continue to believe and endure in that belief. They are the elect. It's faith that endures to the end. Those are the elect. But those who stop believing in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, or they've never believed truly from the heart before they die, they are not the elect. You see, Jesus made this abundantly clear in the Gospel of John, where Jesus describes the elect as those whom the Father gave him, or the sheep that hear his voice. John 6, 37 to 39, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or John 10, 26 to 30, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Parents, it's pretty natural for us to ask, are any of my children among the elect? Will they ever be saved? My children in the home, my children who may have already grown up out of the home, and you are rightly concerned for their salvation. You are rightly concerned for their eternal destination. That's a good impulse. So what should you do? Continue to pray for their conversion. Continue to pray for their conversion. And talk about Jesus around them as you have opportunity. But let me give you a caution, parents. Don't micromanage your children when it comes to proselytizing your children. Don't guilt them. Don't manipulate them. The triune God does not need our help with changing the sinner's heart. No one gets converted from nagging them. No one gets converted by smothering them with the gospel. No, we continue to endure, be patient, and persevere as followers of Christ. Listen, in your endurance, in my endurance, in the Christian faith, and the example we set may very well be used of God to draw your children to him. In his short booklet entitled, How Should Men Lead Their Families?, author Joel Beakey exhorts fathers in this same vein. So listen, fathers, this is a good quote. We are always teaching our children, whether we know it or not, for they are always reading the book of our lives. Besides the Bible, your lives are the most important book your children will ever read. In the book of your life, they will see how important your views on God are, whether worship is a delight or a duty, whether sin is a horrible evil or mere naughtiness, and whether we really cherish our families or view them as a burden. Fathers, we should look in the mirror and ask, what book are our children reading about our life? Husbands, we should look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, what book are our wives reading when they look at our life? And friends, if you have a friend or coworker you long to see know the Lord, it's the same principle. Pray for their conversion. Talk about Jesus as much as you're able but don't smother them. Don't nag them. Don't try to put them in like a, you know, a middle linebacker, Apostle Paul headlock. That's not going to work. Keep praying and endure in your love for them. Members of CCBC, it is God's business to determine who he will save and when he saves them. It is his prerogative, his business, and his power. You know why? God is God and we are not. In the end, our God will always do what is right as the righteous judge of the earth. He will have compassion on whom he wills. He will show mercy to whom he wills for his glory. It is our business as Christ followers to persevere, to endure, to pray, to evangelize, to teach, and that our lives would be a living testimony that we believe this gospel. Why do we endure trials, hardships, criticism, disappointment? 
Why do we stand firm in the faith when the people we love are not showing fruit that we longingly pray for? We resolve to endure in order to see the elect brought into saving faith to Jesus Christ. Friends, in part, that's why this church is planted. You realize that, right? I am so glad for the 121 members of this congregation. Thank you for being a faithful member who regularly gathers and contributes to this ministry. But friends, we cannot have one big holy huddle. We are here in part as a witness to see more of the elect brought in. We preach, we pray, we give, we serve, and we remain steadfast. Because in our endurance, the Lord is turning hearts and eyes away from the world and sin into the Jesus we love. That's why this church in part exists. Spurgeon once said, the preaching of the word by the chosen servants of the living God is the ordained means for gathering in the elect. Paul was suffering for the gospel he believed and preached. He was in prison as if he were a criminal, like his Jesus. But those circumstances did not wreck Paul's theology. They did not wreck Paul's faith because his faith was rooted in something way more stable and sure, the word of God that could not be bound. Friends, that's why here at CCBC, many of our prayers should be centered around just that, for the preaching and teaching of the word of God. In all our prayers, many of them, should be that God would bless, prosper, multiply, advance the gospel, the teaching of sound doctrine throughout our midst. Pray that every preacher, pray that every discipler is bold and clear and faithful. Friends, what reputation do we want here at CCBC of our church? We should want what Jesus would want for our church. Here's the reputation we want for our church. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We want 121 members to be marked by faithfulness. Faithfulness to Jesus. Friends, we should pray that each one of us would remain faithful and not give up. You remember that promise from Galatians 6, 9 and 10? And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friends, if you know a missionary personally that's on the field or missionaries that are preparing to go on the field, 2 Timothy 2.10 should be a source of prayer for those missionaries. Some of them are going to hard to reach places where they will not see a convert for years. What will keep them on the field? They're enduring for the sake of the elect that they may obtain its salvation in Christ Jesus. Friends, our job is to remember Jesus and endure for the sake of the elect. Faithfulness to Jesus is our goal, not fame, not gimmicks, not instant results, not man-made metrics. Members of CCBC, we should desire to be faithful elephant churches. Faithful elephant churches. You might say, Come again, Pastor. We're in Barling. We don't have any zoos around here. Brooks Buser, 
who came here in January with Radius International, has a wonderful word on the difference between rabbit churches and elephant churches. Listen to what he says. Rabbit churches prioritize speed and rapid multiplication, often at the expense of spiritual health and depth. Elephant churches take years to grow and reproduce, but wolves do not easily kill elephant churches. Friends, we want to be an elephant church. We want to be faithful to Jesus over the long haul. We want to be faithful to Jesus even if others are faithless around us. Which leads to our second and final point. Point number two, stay on mission by trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord and not infallible people. Paul concludes his exhortation to Timothy about remembering Jesus and gleaning encouragement from Paul's example by reiterating a saying, what Paul calls a faithful saying, a trustworthy statement. In other words, something to hang your faith on. Notice what he says in verses 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This trustworthy saying could have been a familiar hymn, a creedal statement, or a poem that had been circulated around amongst Christians. But regardless of how it was specifically used, the overarching truths within it are repeated throughout the New Testament. I want you to notice what each verse begins with. It begins with a conditional clause of if, 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 four times. That means there's a condition that has to be met or you'll reap certain consequence. The first half of the verses speak to the inseparable union with Christ and our eternal reward with Christ. If we have died with Christ, we are united to his death through being born again through faith in Christ. We are brought from death to life. We were dead in sin. Now we are made alive in Christ. So if we've died with him at Calvary and he rose again, we now live the resurrection life because we are united with him. You see, at the cross, we may not have been physically present, but our names were in his heart when he died on that cross for the sins of his people the bride of Christ, the sheep, the elect. That's why for the Christian, we should never, never, never doubt God's love and finished work on the cross for us because if he died once and rose again, he will never die again. Christ took our sin and placed them on himself under the just punishment of God. And in exchange, we receive his righteousness and are given the Holy Spirit to live now, not as slaves of sin, but as slaves of righteousness. We go from sin being our master to Jesus Christ being our perfect master. Read Romans 6, maybe this week, to think more about this idea. 
Paul then picks up the same theme he mentioned earlier in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2 of endurance. That's been the theme from the very beginning of this book. Notice what he says. If we endure, we will also reign with him. What does that mean? It means because of the inseparable union with Christ, a chain that can never be broken. Everything that belongs to Jesus, listen, he shares with us. We are co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. That means we get to inherit glorified bodies in the new heavens and new earth. And know what the text says. It says we will reign with him. That means in the new heavens and new earth, we're not floating around like angels eating fairy dust for breakfast. No, it's a real world that can be visually seen and touched where no sin is present. It is a perfect world, exceedingly better than the Garden of Eden. It's not 2.0, it's infinitely better. And on that new heavens and new earth, the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, that will go away, but having dominion and reigning and ruling over the new heavens and new earth are given to the servants of Jesus Christ. There's real cities. There's real food. There's, there's colors. There's animals. There's all sorts of things. There's debates about animals, but I'll just do that in there. Either way, we will reign with him. But then Paul leaves both a word of warning and a word of comfort for Timothy. He says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does it mean to deny Christ? Well, it doesn't mean just to have a doubt. It doesn't mean a season of despondency. The word here is an utter refusal, an utter rejection of Jesus Christ. It means to reject his claims of who he is, to disbelieve his word. Listen, here it is. To deny him is to decisively distrust him. On the last day, Jesus will perfectly know who the sheep are and who the goats are. Who the wheat and who the tares are, the elect and the reprobate. There might be confusion for us here on earth, but it is crystal clear from Jesus' view in heaven. Jesus knows who belongs to him. Yet on that last day, Jesus said many in Matthew 7 who claimed to have known him, but their lives showed no evidence of enduring fruit of the Spirit, and Jesus will tell you, I never knew you. Depart from me. Beloved, it is possible. Listen, I'm talking to people in church, so we're going to have to get raw and real. There are people who play the part, go to church, said the sinner's prayer, walked the aisle, been baptized, and grew up in a Christian family. But their faith was never genuine to begin with. 
They played the part. They tricked everyone else around them, but we cannot trick Jesus. And friends, on that last day, if there's been any false pretense about our faith, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. He will deny you, Paul says. Beloved, have you ever had anyone in your life seem like they just walked away from the faith? Have you ever had anyone in your life appear to be a Christian for a time, perhaps even years, but today you see no obvious fruit in their life? That's really hard, isn't it? As a pastor, that is probably one of the hardest things that I watch. They throw away their marriages. They dive headfirst into sexual immorality. They become alcoholics and drug addicts. They dabble in false religion. They toy with atheism. They see nothing wrong with their sin, or they simply are apathetic to anything about Jesus, the Bible, or church. They could care less. Jesus is not preeminent in their life. Jesus takes a back seat. Sometimes he's rarely even on their minds. And yet Jesus experienced that in his ministry. Paul experienced that in his ministry. Timothy experienced that in his ministry. And friends, it will happen in our life and in our ministry. So what do we need to do? To endure in the faith and not allow the faithlessness of others rock our faith. Look at what he says in verse 13. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul is exhorting Timothy and us this morning, beloved, stay on mission, trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord and not infallible people. Others in our life may become faithless to Jesus, faithless to you, faithless to this church, faithless to whatever commitment they once made, but God will never be faithless. He will remain faithful. So what does it mean that God is faithful? That was our little quiet time this morning with kids at the kitchen table. I mean, if you had the whiteboard, here we are again, sitting there. Okay, who's Jesus Christ? All right, here's another question. Okay, what does it mean that God is faithful? We've got to put some definitions here, right? It means God is always true. God is always reliable. God is always trustworthy. It means that he will never make a promise that he won't fulfill in his timing. But notice what I said, a promise he's made to us. Friends, there is a difference between what God promises us and what our hearts desire sometimes. Sometimes unmet expectations lead to disappointment and despair, but oftentimes those unmet expectations are not promises from God. We need to be very careful of putting words in God's mouth he never said. I'd say 50% of my counseling gets down to that point. Why are you losing hope? Well, you're putting in hope in things that God never promised. Paul Washer puts it this way, it is important to understand that God is faithful, not because he does everything his people desire, but because he does everything that he has promised. That's why it's so important to read and study the Bible for yourself and read it with other Christians. Friends, we should be eagerly awaiting whatever God has promised because he will fulfill what he promised. See, friends, the faithfulness of God is what we cling to in this life. 
His faithfulness secures our trust in him. His faithfulness gives us rest for our souls. His faithfulness, his word, his character is what causes us to keep going forward. God is faithful because it is who he is. He's never learning how to become more faithful. He is faithful. It's his very essence. Friends, how should we respond as we conclude? How should we respond to the wonderful truth that God is faithful? Let me offer seven ways to respond to God's faithfulness. Number one, encourage other believers. Encourage other believers. One way to help other believers endure is to remind them of God's faithfulness and commitment to them. Share how their endurance, their perseverance through their trials is an encouragement for you. Do you understand that? Your trials, your hardships, your suffering is not meant simply for you. It's to encourage someone who's watching you so that your endurance propels them to endure in their life. Number two, pray for everyone in this church, members and elders included. Pray for all of us to grow in faithfulness. Pray that we will grow in faithfulness. Friends, the more we endure, the more faithful we become, friends, we're gonna become stronger for it as a church. Number three, continue to study God's word and bank your life on it. Continue to study God's word and bank your life on it. Proverbs 30, verse five, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Friends, this was Paul's confidence in jail. It's our confidence too. Brian Chappell says, God's word can no more be chained than God himself. Number four, sing about his faithfulness. Sing about his faithfulness. Songs like, great is thy faithfulness. When the morning comes, hark I hear the harps eternal. Friends, take that worship God today and think about those songs this week and how God has been and will be faithful to each one of his people. Number five, recall answers to prayer and share with others what God has done. Recall answers to prayer and share what God has done. Friends, one of the ways our church is built up is when we testify and when we tell each other what prayers God's answered in our life. It spurs us on to faithfulness. It spurs us on to praise God for what he's done because he's faithful. Number six, grow in assurance of your salvation by knowing his promises to complete his work in us. Grow in assurance of your salvation by knowing his promises to complete his work in us. First Thessalonians 5, 22 and 20, or 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, even tonight, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. And we'll do that because Jesus said to partake and do this in remembrance of him. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember his great love for us. Number seven, for the Christ follower, eternal life puts our present sufferings in proper perspective. Eternal life, eternal glory, puts our present sufferings in proper perspective. Because suffering is light and momentary compared to the glory awaiting us, we do not lose heart. 
a frustrating, painful, thorny, growing pains kind of season will soon pass. For everything, there is a season. And by God's grace, we'll understand it better by and by. I close with a quote from John Piper on endurance that I hope would be an encouragement to all of us, but especially to those of us who may be on the back nine of our life. I'll let you choose on what age that is. John Piper, who is 77 years old, has written ridiculous amounts of books, but he's written an excellent series called the Swan Series. It's filled with biographies of Christians who have finished well to the glory of God. A number of years ago, he became acutely aware of how precious his need to endure in the faith became for him, even on the back nine of his life. Listen to what he says. As I complete my 50th year as a professing Christian, I feel the urgency of endurance more than ever. I used to think differently. I used to think when I was in my 20s and 30s that sanctification had a kind of cumulative effect and that at 50, the likelihood of apostasy, that means falling away from the faith, would be far smaller than at 30 or 40. In one sense, this is true. Surely growth and grace and knowledge and faith helps us no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I see more clearly now that even after years of such growth and stability, shocking coldness and even apostasies are possible. And I have known moments of horrifying blankness that made me realize my utter dependence on the mercies of God being new every morning. Perseverance is a gift. That I will wake up and be a believer tomorrow morning is not finally and decisively owing to my will, but to God. I have known too many mornings on the precipice to think otherwise. That I have been snatched back every time is sheer mercy. The human will cannot be depended on because in the crisis of faith, it is precisely the will that is weak and failing. The question is, who will seize it and bring it back to God in faith? More and more, I love the candor and truth of the old hymn by Robert Robinson. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter by my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that your faithfulness would not just be a theological or abstract truth, but be the song of our heart. Father, we pray you would make us a faithful church, an elephant church that grows slowly, but in health and in depth. 
And Father, if there is anyone among our number being tempted to walk away from the faith, Lord, we pray even right now that you would seize their heart and remind them Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave for them. Father, we pray even now as we sing this last song that our faith would not rest in our will, but on your ability to carry us over into glory. In Jesus' name, amen.